Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. For much of the last century, Albania has seemed like Europe's odd one out. It was the last country in the Balkans to gain its independence from the Ottoman Empire. It was the only Muslim-majority state west of Turkey. And it followed a unique path during the Cold War, under the long rule of Enver Hoxha. Our guest today for a conversation about Albanian history is Lea Ippi. She's a professor of political theory at the London School of Economics and the author of several books. Her most recent work is Free, Coming of Age at the End of History. It's an account of her experience growing up in the last years of Albanian communism and the first phase of the country's new order. You refer in the book to your grandmother's experience of growing up in Salonika when it was still part of the Ottoman Empire and that brings up the wider point that Albania itself was the last country in the Balkans to break away from Ottoman rule in the early 20th century. How did Albania emerge and survive as an independent state, at least formally independent, going into the interwar period? Yeah, well, looking and reading the history of the period, it seems sometimes to be an accident of history or rather an accident of the will of the great powers being in competition with each other for hegemony in the Balkans. Albania's history and its effort to be its own independent union were very much entwined with those of the Ottoman Empire for a very long time, in part because it was in the region, one of the countries with the majority Muslim population. It also had an Orthodox, a Greek Orthodox and a Catholic minorities. But throughout its history, it had been this area of the Ottoman Empire, which in one way was unruly and difficult to control. And this comes out from many records of the period. But in another way, it had also produced a lot of the intelligentsia of the Ottoman Empire. Many of the pashas and the leaders that were integrated in the Ottoman administration came from Albania. And so the project for an independent Albania really became the project of a sovereign state when the elites inside the country realized that the Ottoman Empire was about to collapse and that the fate of that whole territory was at stake, in part because there were all these other great powers competing for hegemony in the region, but also because their interests, the interests of these different powers, were at odds with each other. And so Austria-Hungary was competing with Russia for control, and there were different bits of the Albanian territory that were claimed by different states. So in the north, there was Serbia and Montenegro. In the south, there was Greece. Then there was a contentious issue of Macedonia. And there was Italian, always uh, the question of who would have access to the Adriatic Sea. And that was obviously of interest to Italy. So the problem for the emergence of the Albanian states, on the one hand, that it was the last of the cultural movements to try and seek proper independence from the Ottoman Empire, because the elites were so integrated in the Ottoman Empire that they believed for a very long time that they could actually stay, that if the empire were to survive, they, they could stay within the empire and have more and more autonomy within that project. And so, and it only really becomes a project of asking for proper political independence when the intelligentsia realizes that the Ottoman Empire doesn't really have a chance and that it's a kind of failing entity. And at that point, the whole country is in danger because different bits of the territory are claimed by different states. And so there are various moments in the history of the early 
20th century when there is international conferences where the great powers are trying to establish, you know, what would happen with the whole territory controlled by the Ottoman Empire. There's, of course, a, a Russian-Turkish war earlier on, and then there's the two Balkan wars in which the Ottoman Empire is involved. And at, at the end of every one of these conflicts, the territory of Albania is at stake, and there's different neighboring countries laying claim to the territory. And so, and, and it's different stories in different parts of the country. The Ottoman Empire was divided in what was called vilayets, and none of these corresponded perfectly to the actual territory of Albania. So you could divide the territory and you could think about what is that political unit that we now call Albania. You could use a linguistic criterion, or you could use a cultural criterion, or you could think about different ways of organizing politically, depending on how these different parts of this territory integrated in the Ottoman Empire. But there isn't really one definition of what this uh, unit is. And I think the most plausible general story that one can tell is one of, as I say, integration within this kind of wider structure of the Ottoman Empire. The crucial moment, so Albania becomes independent uh, or declares independence unilaterally in 1912, and then it gets recognized slightly later. The crucial moment seemed to be when there is this movement within the Ottoman Empire called the Young Turks movement, which was a movement that was claiming modernization and was supposed to be progressive and reformist and was going to give greater autonomies to the regions of the Ottoman Empire, including Albania, it would have representatives and then also more guarantees on the use of language and of Albanian culture. And so the Albanian intelligentsia had invested a lot in this Young Turk movement until they realized that the Young Turks weren't really, that in the end, this movement also didn't really deliver for these autonomous projects. And they realized that they had to, again, part ways. And eventually, as I say, when the Ottoman Empire, when the fate became really clear, then the uh, the fate of the Albanian state became also really dramatic and the, states, the stakes of it became very, very high. And so it's... Uh, in the 20th century, the territory of Albania, the recognized territory of Albania, is not the same as that of the Albania that is recognized today. One of the hottest and most contentious issues is that of Kosovo, which is majority Albanian speaker, and which at one point was part of um, Albania, or the Albania that was recognized, and then at some point it gets partitioned and uh, Serbia lays claim to the territory in part because of these uh, questions of history and symbolism and, um, and and some story connected to the emergence of the Serbian national myth of founding, while on the other hand, it's a territory with a majority, as I say, of Albanian-speaking population. And so, uh, and the same thing uh, in slightly different form happens in Greece. So there's a question of basically the um, the unity, the territorial unity and the linguistic unity, which are connected in part to this movement for independence, which is a political movement on the one hand, but also a cultural movement that consolidates at the end of the 20th century and then becomes more and more central in the early 20th century. So the state becomes formally detached from the Ottoman Empire in 1912, and then it goes through a very shaky period of uh, first a kind of puppet colonial government ruled by an Austrian prince called Prince Vid. And then afterwards, a series of um, governments which were more or less liberal, more or less conservative. But the early years of the formation of the modern Albanian states, as I say, are very much connected to what happens to the Ottoman Empire. There is no other example in Europe or elsewhere, for that matter, of a communist party having taken power so soon after it was established. And this was in a country where the Red Army never played any direct role in the combat during World War II. 
Speaking very broadly, how did that come to happen, both during and immediately after the war? Yeah, so that is, again, a really interesting question, which has to do with how the uh, Albanian modern state gets consolidated and the various political players. So, as I said, at the end, the beginning of independence, 1912, you have formerly this um, modern state whose territory and boundaries are still contested and still being decided. uh, And in part, the question of recognition by the great powers is always there. And then eventually, at one point, this question gets resolved. There is a kind of um, curtailed independent Albanian state, which has lost a lot of its territory also in the south and in the south of Greece and in the north to to Serbia, uh, which was then the kingdom of Yugoslavia. And then the history of these early years, 1920s, 1930s, of the consolidation of this first Albanian modern state is one of a clash between the old landowners and uh, property owners connected to the Ottoman Empire, a country that is mostly country of landowners. So there isn't really an industrial infrastructure. There aren't really any roads. The population is, majority of it is illiterate. There aren't that many schools. It's very, it's very, very backward uh, place in the Balkans in terms of education and in terms of social standards and in terms of debates about social reform and so on. And so one part of the uh, political elite is one that represents these conservative landowning Bay uh, elites. And on the other hand, there are some beginnings of a progressive movement, which is never really, though, a proper socialist or a communist movement, in part because there isn't really a working class in Albania and it's um, a completely different context compared to other places in Eastern Europe. There is this, uh, the the beginnings of these progressive movements are usually traced to what is called the Democratic Revolution of uh, 1924, which is a revolution led by progressives, but not communists, not socialists. But interestingly, the state that was, uh, that emerged from that short-lived revolution, which was immediately defeated, was one that was recognized by the Soviet Union and for that reason also suspected by the great powers. And so usually when people talk about the emergence of the left movement in Albania, they sometimes trace the genealogy of the left to this democratic revolution of June 1924, uh, led by this character was a bishop who had returned from the US-based Albanian elite and had come to defend some kind of progressive cause in Albania which at that point took the form of promising land reform uh, mostly and promising the return to uh, of the land to the peasants who were living in extremely poor and vulnerable conditions and some kind of uh, effort to uh, respond to the base and to the power that these wealthy property owners had, which were also those who controlled the, the state politically. But there isn't really a, a, a communist movement in Albania. And in fact, Albania in 1940 is the only country in Europe to actually not have a communist party and the way it gets um, the way the communist party emerges is very much connected to the first the invasion of albania by the uh, by the italian fascists and then the nazi takeover from the after the fascist capitulation and the story of the fascists is a very interesting one because the fascists had they formally occupy albania in 19 19- 39, but throughout the 1930s had been consolidating their presence in the country. And so they were a de facto neo-colonial power even before they were a proper occupant. And that was in part because of their network of alliance to King Zog, who was one of uh, these property owners who came from a well-established Albanian family in the north, who at some point 
had consolidated power and tried to um, concentrate uh, that power in his own hands and in the hands of those connected uh, close to him and who had defeated this democratic revolution of 1904. And so and then eventually had become first president and then declared himself king. And so Albania was a kingdom throughout the 20s and 30s, very closely aligned to Mussolini and to, to fascist Italy. So at one point, there is this kind of occupation of Albania in 1939, and uh, which becomes, the, as I say, formal fascist occupation. Good Friday morning along the coast of Albania. The Italian occupation of Albania in April 1939 came just weeks after German troops moved into Prague and Franco's nationalist army conquered Madrid. British newsreels reported on the latest ominous sign of a coming European war. People look out across their harbours down the muzzles of Italian guns. Look into the faces of Italian soldiers. Look up to masses of Italian warplanes. Read leaflets in their own language calling upon them to surrender immediately or be massacred from the air. Some reports say the Albanians resisted the invaders, but what can a nation do outnumbered 40 to 1? So into the capital, Tirana, rides the Italian army, and soon a free assembly of Albanians offers the crown to King Victor Emmanuel. And when all the snipers have been combed out, Count Chano struts in to take charge. And it's only at that point that some of the um, Albanian progressives decide to mobilize and to fight the fascists. And uh, at that point, with the help of Yugoslav communists who were connected to the Comintern, they come to Albania and they decide to lead this process of unity of various elements in the left or what was then, one could associate with some kind of left in Albania, even though, as I said, the conditions for the left were very, very different from other parts of Europe. And what's also interesting is that there had been throughout the 20s and 30s, these people who had, for example, traveled to the um, Soviet Union, some of them had more Trotsky sympathies, some had, some were inspired by the Popular Front in the 30s. Uh, so there, there was a tradition of intellectual elites who had, I, I suppose, left-leaning sympathies. There were magazines in the 30s or newspapers who were publications that were in some ways also inspired by these left-wing ideologies. But there wasn't really a proper integration and a proper connection with uh, the, the people, the population. So it's only when uh, the Yugoslavs come to um, Albania, these representatives of the Yugoslav Communist Party, who instructed by the Comintern had come to help build an Albanian Communist Party, that you have the founding of that party in 1941, whose uh, primary mission is that of fighting the fascists and then the Nazi occupation, and who begins to organize these pockets of resistance to the fascists and the Nazis in Albania. And that's the beginning of this um, Communist Party, who at the start only had about very, very few members, under 100 members in the whole of Albania. You tell the story of your family's personal connections with the political class in Albania, both before and after it became a communist state. You had a relative who briefly served in the government after the Italian invasion and was later denounced as a collaborator. But your grandfather also went to school with Enver Hoxha and at one point he tried to join the international brigades in Spain while he was living in France. Would you say that kind of proximity or intimacy was a general experience for those with higher education in a country where the intelligentsia was quite small? 
Yes, I think the fact that the intelligentsia was quite small is really relevant here. And um, the fact that the this intelligentsia was mainly uh, one that came from these families of property owners, landowners who had been a number of them, especially in the south of Albania, where my family came from, integrated quite closely to the structures of the Ottoman Empire. Then what you have is uh, these older generation of members who were either had been had come from the Ottoman administration were in some ways nationalists and then at some point the nationalists divided between more conservative ones whose economic interests were connected to their uh, to the interests of their class and then more progressive ones who were sort of slight, slightly younger generation who thought of this project of nation building in Albania as also a project of progressive nation building. And so we're interested not just in the consolidation of the state, um, as King Zog and other members of the political elite around him, including my great-grandfather, thought, but who had a different alternative project, which was one that insisted on the importance of building social structures in Albania and making the country more educated and and especially distributing wealth better, and in particular this question of land reform. So I think, yes, it was a um, very standard story. In fact, Enver Hoxha himself came from this similar background. He was also from the south of Albania. He had studied in this uh, French lycée in Korcha, in the, in the south of Albania. His family were also um, property owners, and so came from, uh, from an elite. And I think there wasn't really a political left-wing movement that came from anything other than the elite at that point in that context. What was the experience of those who opposed the new system or those who were merely suspected of being opponents during the post-war period? And how did the split between Stalin and Tito affect the development of Albania? Yeah, this is another really interesting and also really complex question, in part because I think the consolidation of Albanian communism was very much connected to the consolidation of the Albanian state. In other words, the period in which Albania was an independent country was very, very short and immediately, very soon after it became an independent country, it became also a communist country. The communists uh, organized they were the main force behind the resistance. There were other forces as well. There was what was called the National Front, uh, who were nationalists but not left-wing and whose interests were more closely aligned to those of the landowners and rich in Albania, but who were still nationalists and trying to fight the fascists and then the Nazi occupation. And there were also some who were sympathetic to the king. The king had fled Albania in 1939, by the way. When the fascists arrived, he had fallen out with the fascists who he had initially supported and who had initially supported him. So the king was in exile, but there were some of his supporters who were staying also in exile, but then in the come and trying, were trying to help with the resistance. But the Albanian Communist Party was the most organized political unit and who was sort of fighting this resistance to the point that uh, several of the outsiders who also came to witness this in um, Albania, the the resistance in Albania and so on, decided to invest in this uh, left-wing resistance and not in these other parts because they thought the the left was the most uh, disciplined, the most organized, and they were following Lenin's principles. But the influence and the role that the Yugoslav communists played in this organization of the Albanian resistance couldn't be overstated. Uh, However, once the war was over, the question was that of 
first the uh, part of Albania that was under Yugoslavia, but only recently had become part of Yugoslavia. So this whole trauma or the separation of these uh, ethnic Albanians who lived in the north of Albania and Kosovo and so on, who had uh, ended up being as a result of the splits of the major power of the great powers, part of Yugoslavia. And then this, uh, and then Albania itself, which was an independent country. And so this was always a contentious issue with the communist Yugoslavs, because on the one hand, they said that they recognized the, um, that in some ways they recognized the claims to self-determination of Albanians, and they were also somewhat, or at least indicated that they were somewhat sympathetic. But then at another point, uh, Tito had his own project of a federal socialist uh, unit in the Balkans, and so a federal federation of socialist republics. And Albania was hypothesized as one of the members of this federal socialist republic, at which point there was a power struggle within the Albanian Communist Party between those who supported Tito and then those who were like Enver Hoxha, much more reluctant because they didn't want to be to let Albania be part of this Yugoslav project, in part for nationalistic reasons and in part for power reasons and reasons to do with um, also a fight of egos and so on. But this question of nationalism was always there from the beginning and it played out with the Yugoslav communists in this way. And when it turned into a, a fight within different factions of the Albanian Communist Party, so more a pro-Yugoslav faction and an anti-Yugoslav faction, the only thing that then decided the fate of the Albanian Communist Party was the Stalin-Tito split uh, later on. Marshal Tito leads two days of celebrations in Belgrade. The break between Stalin and Tito was one of the most dramatic developments in the early Cold War. Western governments hoped that it might drive a wedge through the Soviet bloc. Today, the army Tito led against Nazi occupation prepares to repel Soviet occupation. Once the keenest of Russia's satellites, Yugoslavia is now just an in-between precariously balanced between East and West. Gone are the Stalin portraits from the streets, where once the entire output of the great copper mines was directed to Russia, it now flows to the West for pounds and dollars. Helped by her rugged mountains and hope for Western aid, Yugoslavia is confident that she can resist attack. While mindful that Tito is still a communist dictator, the West moves to help him. For if Tito can stand up to Stalin, the possibility of Moscow dominating the world becomes that much less likely. So Stalin didn't really have an interest in Albania, didn't really know a lot about Albanian communism, and also from what one can read from Enver Hoxha's memoirs, for example, in which he talks about this. He's got a book called Titoists, in which he explains a little bit this relationship between the Albanian communists and the Yugoslav communists early on. It's clear that the Soviet Union wasn't that interested in Albania to begin with, and also that Stalin didn't have didn't know a whole lot. And also, it's obvious from history that uh, none of the either the Allied forces or the Soviet Union had been part of the liberation of the uh, Albania by the Nazis, by the fascists and the Nazis. And so, it looked like the communists had uh, relatively a relative autonomy to operate, but because they had this internal fight between these two factions within the Communist Party, what decided and what resolved this fight between, as I say, the pro-Yugoslav faction and the anti-Yugoslav faction that was led by Enver Hoxha was the um, Tito-Stalin split and the decision of the Albanians to ask for support from the Soviet Union in anti-Tito function. 
And that's the point at which Albania becomes isolated from uh, Yugoslavia and follows the Soviet Union uh, and gets protection from the Soviet Union. Many of the deals that Albania had signed, also commercial and economic deals that they had signed with Yugoslavia get broken and they get signed with the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union becomes a force that also supports the country economically until the death of Stalin. What impacted the political thaw in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe after Stalin's death have on Albania? Was there any reformist tendency in the late 1950s that was akin to those in Poland or Hungary at that time, however tentative it might have been? Yeah, I mean, there were uh, the the at the point in which Stalin dies and the Soviet Union takes this more independent course and there is a critique of Stalinism and the critique of the purges and this uh, idea that now the Communist Party in the Soviet Union would take slightly different direction. This is very sensitive in Albania because Albanians know that um, also there will be a rapprochement between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia or there might be this rapprochement between the Soviet Union and Yugoslavia. And so again, the question of the uh, relationship with Yugoslavia is often crucial to understand Albania's stance towards the Soviet Union and to what extent the Soviet Union is continuing to is going to continue maintain its interests. So in part, it's a struggle that is about ideological purity and about the fact that Enver Hoxha had declared himself to support Stalin and to support Stalinism. And uh, at the point in which the Soviets decide to revise and to revisit the cult of Stalin, uh, the Albanians become extremely defensive and uh, decide to instead fight for Stalin and for the maintenance and to criticize to, uh, to criticize this kind of reformist tendency. In part, that is, as I say, because of the uh, relationship with Yugoslavia that shapes always the history and the relationship of Albania to these alternative great powers. But in part, it's just ideological and it has to do with the um, subscribing to this line of thinking that had been Stalin's line of thinking and which the Soviet communists felt that it was time to draw a line on and to try and think about the project um, in a different way. And that's something that Albanian communists are reluctant to accept. There are struggles in the party, but Enver Hoxha always manages to uh, somehow circumscribe and they often lead to internal purges. Some of them already began with the the Yugoslav faction and, and then that became almost standard that offered the blueprint on the basis of which then the Communist Party, which had at one point changed the name from the Communist Party of Albania to the Albanian Labour Party, um, becomes just a blueprint for how these internal disagreements would be handled. Enver Hoxha ruled Albania for almost four decades before his death in 1985, which was one of the longest periods in power for a ruler of any political complexion in the 20th century. He's often remembered today for his more eccentric statements and actions in power, which perhaps overshadows the bleaker side of his rule for those who fell foul of it. What kind of a man did he show himself to be over the course of his political life? And what impact do you think his own personality had on the Albanian system? Um, I think the assessment changes at different points of his career, uh, I usually am reluctant to talk about Enver Hoxha as such because it's for me it's more interesting to understand what are the forces, what are the political processes, what are the compromises that lead to him becoming, to consolidating his power within the Communist Party and then to maintaining that power. I think he starts out as, as I say, someone who comes from this elite family, who has gone to France, who's been, like many people of his generation, the 20s and 30s, educated in the West and also inspired by these progressive ideas in the West. And then 
when he comes to Albania, he's part again of this movement and he's in no way central. He's not the main character in the beginning. There's other members of the Albanian Communist Party that seem to be as influential as him. And he becomes much more central after the Albanian um, Yugoslav split. So he's successfully manages to uh, control this or to use this struggle between Tito and Stalin to his advantage to eliminate his adversaries in the party. And then from then on, it's a story of ongoing holding on to power and consolidation of that power and ruthless um, response to adversaries. And so he becomes more and more like a tyrant. You know, the classical tyrant is someone who is uh, who controls everyone and who tries to hang, hang on to, to hold on to power and who is inspired by this idea of himself being more and more indispensable and the idea that, you know, the party couldn't survive, the country couldn't survive. And of course, the, the narrative of that and this cult of the individual is fueled by everyone around him. He's the father of the nation. Everyone recognizes and talks to him and talks about him as though he were the father of modern Albania, someone who has uh, defeated the fascists and the Nazis. And so there is a whole myth around Enver Hoxha, which was inculcated in schools, which was repeated in uh, workplaces, which everybody subscribed to more or less sincerely. Um, in fam- families like my family, obviously nobody ever believed that, but there may have been other uh, families in Albania in which that belief was more sincere, especially if one judges by the um, amount of crying and the kind of wailing that goes on when he dies. Although it had a reputation for being hermetically sealed from the outside world, Hodges Albania had its own version of Radio Free Europe, or the BBC World Service. This is Radio Tirana. Radio Tirana broadcast in several different languages, including Arabic and Portuguese. Its Anglophone service had a certain novelty value for amateur radio enthusiasts. On April 11, 1985, there was a sombre announcement to the rest of the world. With the deepest grief, we inform you that today the heart of the beloved and glorious leader of the party and our people, Comrade Enver Hodja, first secretary of the Central Committee of the Party of Labour of Albania, chairman of the General Council of the Democratic Front of Albania, commander-in-chief of our armed forces, ceased to beat. The founder of our glorious party, the organizer and leader of the National Liberation War and of our people's revolution, the architect of the construction of the new socialist Albania, departed from our ranks forever. The heroic commander of our National Liberation Army, he who created the Democratic Front and laid the foundations of the people's power, closed his eyes forever. The life and work of Enver Hodja is the living history of present-day Albania. His name is linked with all the class battles and with all the victories of the party and the Albanian people. Comrade Enver Hodja led the party and the people in the realization of the deep-going ideological and cultural revolution which has been carried out in our country. The fact that today Albania is an advanced socialist country developing on its own forces 
the homeland of a people liberated from every kind of social and spiritual oppression, a country of the democracy and well-being for all, of education and culture for the broad masses of the people, this is the merit of the struggle waged by the Albanian people with the party and comrade Enver Hodja at the head. By the time of his death, I think he really was, he really had become this, uh, as I say, paradigmatic tyrant, someone who was uh, in some ways controlled and had absolute power over uh, everything. His latest fight had been with one of his closest allies from the beginning of the, um, the resistance movement, who was also prime minister of Albania for a very long time and who ends up killing himself in very mysterious circumstances in 1982 or 1983. And so this is really the end of a series of internal power struggles which led to murders and killing of adversaries and execution of dissidents and suppression of all kinds of attempts to challenge his um, hegemony in the party and his control of the state. Hodges' obituary on Radio Tirana mentioned his long struggle against internal opposition, whether real or imaginary. No one has fought with so much force and determination as he against the internal enemies of the party, the groups of factionalists and foreign agents from Kochidzodze up to the band of Mehmet Shell. This struggle was the salvation for the party, the people and our homeland. The question of what kind of ruler he was, as I say, depends on various points of Albanian history. He's someone who is different, but he uh, tries to always mobilize Albanian nationalist sentiment in the service of his own political ends. And that is perhaps the main characteristic of his long, sort of almost 40-year rule in Albania as the leader of the Communist Party is the ability that he has to use and to instrumentalize this narrative of national independence, of national self-sufficiency, his national rhetoric of the protection of Albania to consolidate his own position in the country and uh, with all the familiar, as I say, episodes of blood and uh, violence and oppression of and murder of adversaries and so on. So that's the story of Albania in a way, follows the story of his own commitment to being the key office holder in Albania. And from this initial period of alliance with the Yugoslavia, to then the split with Yugoslavia and aligning to the Soviet Union, to then the split with Soviet Union and aligning with uh, China, and then there's a split with China when, again, China takes a reformist path. So the story is very much one of looking for protection who uh, from a great, from a, a superpower, Soviet Union, China, and so on, and getting concessions and getting both political and economic support from these superpowers. And then the moment in which they become, take a more moderate direction or begin to revisit the idea, the cult of the individual or whatever, something that would endanger his own control of the party, then the national rhetoric gets mobilized at the service of the of this project of severing links with the superpowers and then this idea is that Albania is a small country which has resisted mighty empires throughout its history and now needs to do the same because now there's this new former ally which has turned out to be corrupt and who which has formed up turned out to betray the real ideals of socialism and then the image of is of one of Albania in which there's you have a small state that is almost setting the example for other small states around the world who want to resist big powers, whether it's the imperialist West or the um, revisionist East. And that's why, that's one of the reasons why 
Albania becomes for many people from the outside who don't know the situation from within becomes this uh, country that, as a slogan used to go, the lighthouse of other anti-imperialist struggles around the world. And the reason is that it it has created successfully this narrative of itself as the country led by Enver Hoxha, who is able to stand up to these great superpowers, but with this cost of huge isolation and um, huge violence within and no tolerance for dissidents. The image of Albania as the last stronghold of true communism inspired this piece of music by the English industrial group Test Department, with the title Comrade Enver Hoxha. It blended samples from Radio Tirana discussing world events with a haunting, repetitive backing track. Whether Comrade Enver Hoxha was intended as a sincere tribute to the late Albanian ruler, or a poker face parody of their more zealous comrades, is the standout track on the group's 1986 album, the unacceptable face of freedom. At the funeral of a young demonstrator killed by the London mercenaries in Belfast was also transformed into a powerful protest demonstration. More than 5,000 people took part in this demonstration, powerfully condemning the savage terror of the British occupiers against the freedom-loving people of Northern Ireland and demanding the ousting of the occupiers. From your account of your childhood in the book, it appears that you took the ideology of the system largely at face value until 1991. For example, you say that you never deciphered the code that your family used to talk about people they knew who were in prison or who had died in prison. It probably is very common for children to take what they learn in school at that age at face value, whatever political system they may happen to live under. But how far do you think the state ideology had been accepted by people who were adults but had grown up under Hodge's rule? This is also a really difficult question to answer as maybe one that is still one of the sort of most controversial questions that are still crucial to current political debates in Albania. I would say that it depends very much on the family and on the context in which you know these adults had grown up. In a family like mine, who was uh, clearly dissident, had been dissident from 1946, my parents, even though they had they were born in communist Albania, they were born in this rhetoric of suspicion towards the class enemy, and they had been very quickly they had learned very quickly that they were the class enemy, and so they'd been singled out as the class enemy, and so they lived their entire lives watching over their shoulders and worrying that you know some colleague at work might spy on them or some relative who might uh, you know, listen to their conversations if they didn't trust them. They needed to be careful because they might report on them and so on. And so I'd say that my family was obsessed to an extreme with uh, the um, spying system and with the network of collaborators of the system and the people who were watching to see if they were doing something wrong. And for that reason had developed this very elaborate code to talk amongst themselves and to also to talk to people they trusted about the system, but in a way that wouldn't have been intelligible to uh, to a child like me. 
different experiences. And I think also different people from different generations report different things. So when I've discussed the book now in Albania, there's other uh, people who say come from different family backgrounds and they say, well, no, actually in my family, we spoke about uh, this and I knew about the injustice of the system from very early on. So sometimes people are surprised when I say that I was 11 and I didn't actually know anything about what was going on because my family had this very elaborate code and, uh, they try to shelter me and protect me from political conversations in part to protect themselves because they didn't want me to say something that was wrong that would endanger them. But in part also, I think, to protect my ambitions because I was this very um, committed young pioneer who believed that the state that she lived in was a right state and was a state where freedom mattered and that was committed to promoting freedom, not just for its people, but also for everyone else around the world. And my parents did nothing to challenge that narrative in part, as I say, because I think they didn't want me to kill the ambition to early of being a good citizen, um, which they thought came with caring about work or um, uh, thinking about reading or becoming more and more educated and so on. So they didn't want to stifle that too early. In other families, people say that they're there was more open conversation. Of course, it was never public. There was never really a dissident movement in Albania in, which, in the way in which there was in other countries like Poland or Hungary or the Czech Republic. Um, every dissidence was immediately silenced and immediately suppressed. And also when things changed in 1990, it didn't really come from any historical dissidence. It was very much a change that was driven from the inside by the, the former Labour Party who had decided that... Uh, you know, it was over for most of Eastern Europe and it was going to be over for Albania soon anyway. And so they, there was this transition and this power transfer that was more peaceful precisely because of this, because it was managed from the inside, a lot of it. So, um, And so to that extent, I think some perhaps families of communist officials or families that were different from mine might have had different codes of uh, conversation or might have been a little bit more open, might not have been quite as paranoid as my parents were about protecting themselves from the um, from spies or from the system. And so I think it really changes depending on the social background of who you're talking about and depending on how they were positioned, whether they were party members or not party members. Uh, my, pa- my parents, for example, were not allowed, even, even if they had wanted to, they couldn't have been in the party. And so they were extra careful because that... Uh, gave you a lesser layer of protection whereas in families of party members perhaps the conversations would have been different and the people would have been more open about discussions but this is something that people don't really talk about very openly in Albania because the narrative is very much one of everyone is oppressed oppressed by the system and you know if you were to be more nuanced about the degrees of oppression or the ways in which you were impacted by censorship and the differences between different families and how they were impacted by censorship, this might suggest different levels of complicity. And it's a very difficult, a very tricky question to raise in the post-communist Albania. After the fall of the Eastern Bloc in 1989, Hodja's successor, Amiz Aliyah, initially pledged to carry on as before. An episode of The Simpsons that was broadcast in April 1990 featured an Albanian exchange student who is still loyal to the official ideology. How can you defend a country where 5% of the people control 95% of the world? I'm defending a country where people can think and act and worship any way they want. Cannot. Can too. Cannot. Can too. Please, please, kids, stop fighting. Maybe Lisa's right about America being a land of opportunity, and maybe a deal has a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Your father is right. We should not fight. Friends, well, okay. 
Well, now that that's settled, I'll just clear the dishes. No, no, Mrs. Simpson. You have been oppressed enough for today. I will clear the dishes. No. Okay. By the end of 1990, however, the president felt obliged to promise the beginning of a post-communist transition. The BBC reported on developments in Albania as if it were a land that time forgot. Albania's president has pledged to relinquish the leading constitutional role of the Communist Party and transform the country into a market economy. President Ramiz Aliya told the party's national conference that Albania wanted to play a full part in Europe and pleaded for Western aid and credit to revive the economy. But he stressed that Albania would not give up its Marxist ideology. From their Bill Hamilton reports. A sight that few outsiders have ever had the chance to behold. Albania, one of the most beautiful countries in Europe, yet unquestionably the poorest. In the foothills of the Daiti Mountains, these peasants earn a meagre 10 pounds a week. An age apart from the rest of Europe, even here, life is changing. New reforms mean they can now keep one animal for their own profit. In these communities, where most families have at least five children, the smallest improvement in living standards can mean a big difference. Albania's experience of capitalism in the 1990s proved to be quite traumatic. In 1997, the collapse of a huge pyramid scheme led to a brief civil war. Three decades after the transition began, it remains one of the poorest countries in Europe. A lot of the discussion around your book has focused on the communist periods, understandably perhaps, because it is such a compelling story about your family. But you do have an entire second part of the memoir which concentrates on the experience of post-communist Albania, where you suggest, for example, that the dogmatic, ideological thinking of functionaries from the World Bank and the IMF who came to Albania had something in common with very crude forms of dialectical materialism under the old system. Do you think that people were expecting a rather more conventional account that would make them feel better about present day Western capitalism? I don't really know, because I think I've actually been surprised by how well the book has been received, even by people who you would have thought uh, would have been more upset by the second part of the book, actually. And I think it may be to do with the timing in which the book was released, the fact that it comes at a moment of crisis for a lot of Western countries, post-corona, post-pandemic, but also before that. There is a sense in which the liberal system is at a moment of questioning itself and uh, thinking about its own foundations and thinking about, you know, can you take this project forward? What do you need to do to um, to change things? And there's a sense in which some of the responses also in Eastern Europe uh, to liberalism in the West are responses that come from failures of the way in which these globalization projects and these neoliberalization projects in these countries were conducted in the 90s. So I think um, in a way... I don't know if people were expecting something different because to me it's been really surprising how even though there is a very critical message in the second part of the book about this period of post-transition and about the way in which the shock therapy and all the discussions around neoliberalization and so on were conducted, even though Albania is in many ways sui generis and even though it's got its own distinctive set of experiences compared to other countries, I've been surprised to see how receptive a number of what I would have thought as the usual suspects who defend liberalism were actually to some of the criticism, in part because, as I say, I think it came at a time in which everyone was more or less questioning themselves about this. 
the more for me the more controversial and more difficult aspects have actually been in Albania not in the west in the sense that uh, in the west i think the uh, reception of the book has been universally positive and um, from the right from the left in part because i think people from the right tend to read the first part of the book and enjoy the criticisms of uh, or the stories that i tell about real socialism and some of the criticism of albanian communism and some of the discussions around censorship and how it works and so on and then on the other hand there's people from the left who read the second part and then they also appreciate the criticism of the neoliberal dynamics that came and had hold on the country after 1990 whereas the for me the most difficult aspects of the debate have actually been in Albania because that's where there is a lot more reluctance and resistance to accepting that these are two stories of two different systems and people are inevitably drawn to thinking okay so what is this time trying to tell us about was liberalism just as bad as communism or was communism is, is she being enough critical of this communist period in um, Albanian history and so on and that's where some of the criticism of the book has come and some of the debates actually. As a final question, which is perhaps especially relevant to a lot of people listening to this episode, um, at the end of the book, you challenge people on the left in Europe and North America who may consider the experience of countries like Albania to be irrelevant to their own understanding of socialism. How would you like to see people engaging with that experience and, and learning from it? So this goes back to something that I say at the, both at the beginning and at the end of the book. At the beginning, I quote Rosa Luxemburg, where I say, who in turn quotes Marx when, you know, Marx says people don't make history of their own free will. And Rosa Luxemburg says, well, but they still make history. And in some ways, I think one of the messages of the book is this idea that concepts, theories, ideologies never enter a context or historical context in the way in which we would want them to enter that context. There's never a kind of perfect realization of an ideal and there's never an environment or there's never a set of circumstances that is just how it should have been for that um, set of ideals to be realized. In the case of communism in Albania, for example, it's really striking because you have a theory like the Marxist theory that is a theory that has starts and is developed for the industrial world that presupposes very advanced capitalist relations, that presupposes a fairly advanced liberal state with a democracy and with elections and parliamentary representation and so on, where all of these elements make a difference to how you then think about the critique of capitalism and how you think about the further project as a project of, as I see it, radical democratization of economic and political relations that are already in place. But then, of course, you have that same set of ideas that, as I say, is developed for a context like that, for a context like Britain or France and so on. And then you see that it enters a country like Albania, say, but I'm sure other countries in Eastern Europe could be a good example, which is a state that is still very much a state in its early years of existence, where the national project, the project of consolidation of the territory, of the boundaries, of the state can't be separated from the project of social reform and can't be separated from this idea of recognition from the outside world. And of course, you know, the set of social relations is one where it's completely different because you don't have, so you have a, a theory that is made for the working classes in a country where there aren't workers at all. It's mostly peasants and a theory that is uh, conceived for a context where people have developed ideas around democracy and democratic debate and liberal representation and so on, that is applied to a place where most people are illiterate. They can't even read and write at the point in which this theory arrives to them. And so, and this is, I think, a, a wake-up call because it's in some ways important reminder that this is how ideas always come to be. 
this is how they become part of history. And it's easy to say, well, you know, this is not what should have happened, or this is not really the theory, or this is not really what, um, you know, because it's entered the context like that, then we can completely dismiss these experiences. To me, it's important precisely to engage with the experiences and to engage also with these experiences. And that is that applies to both socialism and liberalism, and as I say, to any complex of uh, complex combination of ideas and reality to see how they apply to these different historical contexts and what can we can be learned when you think about transforming and changing circumstances and transforming societies in a way that is as informed by that historical context as possible. I think one of the problems with uh, you know the West engaging with other parts or even Western intellectuals or liberal elites engaging with other parts of the non-Western world is that of not knowing enough about the history of these places and not knowing enough about the context, the circumstances of their state formation, the power dynamics within them, the social relations, and then going there and applying whatever you know theory they have come up with to those circumstances. And to me, that is one of the gravest limitations of that approach is that if you go to a context without knowing the history, without knowing how certain dynamics have developed, then you're much less likely to have a complete sense of constraints, but also of opportunities when you engage with that context. And to me, that's very obvious whenever you see you know, how liberals engage with other parts of the world. There's this kind of set of abstract, not sufficient knowledge of the context. And that coupled with the kind of arrogance about the fact that, you know, we know better because these ideas have come in these places and they've been sophisticated and uh, they have been elaborated through the intellectual exchanges over the course of many, many years. And so, you know, what can you learn from just going and applying them? You'd, people have a kind of arrogance about the fact they don't need to know a whole lot about these contexts. And so, I think what I would like to see the left do is to not disengage completely from these historical experiences of real socialism as though they just weren't part of them. I think it's really important to engage with them and to see why things went the way they went, why they failed, what were the constraints, how were social relations in these different contexts and you know what made the economies fail, what made the political systems fail. Could there have been an alternative path? What would have been required for there to have been an alternative path? And what can you learn from these reflections when you're thinking about possibly um, renovating or adapting or uh, re reconfiguring and reimagining these projects for the future? And I think that's it's really in the spirit of engaging with history in a way that enables people to learn from history and not just sort of use history as something that you realize that something didn't work and then you can just ignore it. Or uh, there's a kind of truth that is uncomfortable and hard for uh, someone like who is on the left and who believes in these ideas, but then sees the way they worked in these contexts and you just dismiss them as though they had nothing to do with the history of the left. I think that's not a mature attitude and I think it's not an attitude that one can learn very much from, whereas a much more productive attitude would be to actually, as I say, think about these historical experiences as learning processes. Many thanks to Leia Uppi for that account of modern Albania. For anyone who wants to know more, her book Free explores some of these questions at much greater length. You can also find some of her political essays and interviews on the Jacobin website 